0: This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists on the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about all the different ways in which water can transform the landscapes around us. It's a good show. Stay with us. I
1: feel like I'm in the... the business of blowing minds and incredibly rewarding and fun thing to do to take students out to field trips or to landscapes and change their whole way of their looking at it and be like whoa really is this, that's what this, you know and and to be able to see that look on students faces I mean it's like the absolute pinnacle of what I do one aspect is trying to figure these things out but I can't wait to come back and tell somebody about it because that's really where I feel the most rewarded for sure
0: Today on Science Moab, we talk about a branch of science called fluvial geomorphology with Dr. Taylor Joyle from Northern Arizona University. Fluvial geomorphologists study the way in which water shapes the earth. Here with Dr. Joyle, we learn about how humans have interacted with fluviogeomorphic processes and how increased land use change will continue to influence these landscape level processes. Dr. Joyle has worked in the Southwest and the tropics and speaks passionately about his love of reading landscapes. We begin with Dr. Joyle explaining his definition of fluvial geomorphology.
1: Well, basically, fluvial geomorphology is how water shapes the surface of the earth. And primarily, I look at river systems, but it is much more broad than that in the sense that we really look at it from a watershed perspective. So in simplest terms, water is the number one process for shaping the surface of the Earth in terms of uh, terrestrial landscapes. Mm -hmm. Volivial geomorphology has two large realms, one being watching how water shapes the planet now. We can stand, watch it, measure it. We can simulate it in in a laboratory. But also there's so much information left behind by these processes that have been acting on the planet for thousands of years, if not you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of years. So understanding those processes enough in a contemporary sense to then be able to look at these deposits that have been left behind and say, oh, this is what was going on, this is what the environment was like, this is how the system reacted to this event in the past, so we can make a claim that it might react that way in the future.
0: So, Dr. Joyle talks a lot about the driving forces of water and the resisting forces within a landscape. In a concept that I had never really thought about before, he outlines how the geology and structure of the landscape can actually resist changes brought about by gravity and water, which would be considered driving forces. Those resisting and driving forces can potentially reach a kind of equilibrium on the landscape. These big ideas become important because humans have the potential to disrupt that landscape equilibrium. Here he is explaining the concept in more detail.
1: I am really interested in how landscapes evolve with the driving force of water but also how they equilibrate and become kind of balanced between the resisting forces of the landscape trying to resisting erosion and change through water, but then the driving forces. And so there's, I, I really am interested in this concept, that's somewhat controversial more and more in geomorphology that, there is, that landscapes can develop a balance between these driving and resisting forces, driving being like water and gravity, and, and the resisting being like the geology the structure and, and the resistance to change. I'm really curious about how humans then maybe interrupt this long history of interplay between these driving and resisting forces and how landscapes then reflect that and understanding from a you know real geomorphic perspective how those processes are acting on the landscape so that we can predict how if we alter a, a landscape or alter processes associated with landscapes say climate change for example what will be the response be
0: what kind of time scale are you talking about when you're talking about acting
1: in great, great question uh, so in both the driving and the resisting forces we in terms of landscape and landscape evolution the scale is a huge question to ask before we even get any any further and it's not just the time scale it's a spatial and temporal scales that we really need to acknowledge And so if we're just looking at like bed forms, ripple marks in the bottom of the stream, that's providing some resistance to flow, creating some turbulence, and we can see it happening. We can try to quantify the turbulence it's creating versus a a flame bed or a smooth, sandy bed. It's not gonna create that resistance and it's gonna allow that water to, to zing along there a little bit faster. And so there's like a resistance on that really fine scale level. And then we look at something like Canyonlands and you've got these enormous joint fields that have created this pattern of resistance that has been exaggerated by forces of wind and water and blown apart like these fins of needles and all these flanforms that are a product of geologic structure. Or if you travel across, say, the San Juan River um, and you go through Lime Ridge and you see these huge upwarp folds that the river is cut right through, seemingly disregarding any kind of resistance that that structure provides. Yet then right before you enter, say, Lime Ridge, you see Cone Ridge coming in and the drainage is very much following the lower resistance rocks that are in between these layers as they've been uplifted. And so the drainage is then dictated by that resistance of the geology. And so you see both at play and you start to recognize that it really births these questions of why this and not here and and so some of the theories behind you know why all these canyon systems that are meandering they represent these slow lowland rivers that used to be flowing into the Colorado Plateau that was once a basin, then uplifted and basically locking those remnant channel forms in stone as they were carving down into this uplifting structure from below. Seemingly, the resistance was not enough for that system not to overcome it and lock the meandering pattern in. And so, yeah, time scale plays a role. Like if that uplift would have happened more quickly, most likely that river system wouldn't have had the ability to cut through it at the rate that it was uplifting.
0: So one of the geomorphic and fluvial processes that occur in the southwest are arroyo cuttings. Arroyos are just another name for dry washes that occur around the southwest, but in many places around here these dry washes are actually being cut into by water, leaving behind these really steep banks that you can see. So here Dr. Joel actually explains some of the ideas behind what is causing these arroyo cuttings and some of the historical implications of cuttings that have occurred in the past.
1: It's even more interesting when you look at river systems, especially in the Southwest. There's quite a dynamic interplay in the river valleys of the American Southwest. And the arroyo cutting that we've seen between the 1880s and the, the 1930s is pervasive across the Southwest. And it begs the question, why? Is it a climate? Is it overgrazing? And that's kind of been this classic argument in both, I think, from the landowner, land manager point of view, but also from the academic side, trying to tease apart why these systems have reacted the way they have on a regional scale, you know, like one watershed separate from another watershed, yet they both reacted the same way by incising into their floodplains, and and why did that happen? And Is that a case of disequilibrium, or is that a a longer time frame of these systems, you know, binging and purging, filling and evacuating their sediment over time based on a larger suite of processes, and that dynamic equilibrium includes both the filling and the incising of these valleys over time, and that defines that overall equilibrium. I've had arguments with, you know, pointing out that, okay, it's maybe not this human influx that has caused every one of these arroyo-cutting events, that it is a natural process that is based on this interplay of processes that are driving landscape change, which to me is really fascinating.
0: Dr. Joyle has worked in a variety of landscapes, including spending lots of time in the amazing tropics. Here he talks about the fun of trying to understand how to apply our ideas about one place and test them to see if they work in another.
1: I find my heart in the Southwest, and especially the Colorado Plateau, but I'm also curious how a lot of these concepts and fundamental ideas of geomorphology and fluvial geomorphology specifically Kind of fit when you pull them out of where they were dev- derived, which is basically temperate regions, and the understanding of all these concepts in those systems. Well, if you bring it to an arid world, it's actually quite different. And then when you bring it to a tropical mountain ra- range, it's you know kind of the other end of the spectrum, and it, some of the ideas don't quite work. So I'm really curious, somehow, to kind of tease apart different environments and how all these the thinking that we've we've created in the last uh, several decades really plays out.
0: Dr. Joyle looks at how human land use has changed large fluvial geomorphic patterns. And part of his work is actually involved looking at these massive cuts into the geologic feature known as the Mogollon Rim in northern Arizona. And this rim is super cool. It's the southern boundary of the Colorado Plateau. And what Dr. Joyle and his team are seeing is these stream cuttings that have cut into the Mogollon Rim and have cut the earth down to the bedrock. This amount of stream cutting has never been seen before in this region. And so what Dr. Joel hypothesizes is that in the past, fires were occurring at a regular frequency in the ponderosa pine forests above the Mogollon Rim. And when these fires occurred, they brought sediment down the rim and re- that refilled these stream cuttings. But because fires have been removed from the landscape, desher Joyle suggests that we are seeing streams cut down to bedrock because there is no sediment replacing what is lost over time. So here he is explaining this idea further and also suggesting other reasons for this unique stream-cutting event.
1: There's a fire-induced process of hillslope erosion that we have effectively cut off by fighting every fire in this ponderosa pine forest that (laughs) exists in this landscape. And we've not only kept fire from happening in the typically 2 to 12-year fire frequency in these ponderosa pine forests, but also let these forests overthicken. So the root structure, the cohesion, has just become extreme. The Mogollon Rim in Arizona is the precipitation hotbed. That's where the majority of our precipitation falls in the state, is along this rim as storms come up from the south, the monsoonal moisture and is pushed up, in the orographic cold air, as it gets pushed up, drops all the moisture. So we get these storms, and they should drive erosion on the hill slopes. But when you have this intense density of forests that's not being allowed to burn, then we've cut off that source of sediment. The foresters have to put in little check dams along the These streams would try to slow the flow, create little reservoirs that would drop the sediment out. But those streams have just eroded around those things because they don't have any sediment. They're seeking it out, and they found it in what were once really rare, important wet meadows in these headwater systems of the little Colorado River. And as a result, they've just incised and pulled all that material away. The other thing you could argue, there's no hard evidence for this but you could make a case for one beaver that had been eradicated from this landscape that were once slowing flow and creating marshy landscapes that could degrade and fill in with sediment but also the lack of a top predator we've seen this play out in yellowstone national park when they brought the wolves back in the 90s to the yellowstone national park it scared all the elk and deer away from the wet meadows the open areas they were more prone to be predated upon and all the willow grew back and the aspen grew back. The food for the beaver grew back. And as a result, the channels that were eroding in the Yellowstone as well stopped eroding as a product of a top predator, a keystone predator, and bringing back a, a potentially this ecosystem engineer, which are the beaver. But on the muggy and rim, the way I think about it, and again, this hasn't been tested, but it's a you know, it's an interesting way to think about it, is that the elk in that region are overpopulated. They're not a native elk species. They're the Roosevelt elk from Colorado, and they're a bigger bigger organism than the native elk, but the bigger issue is that there are more of them. They have no reason not to just hang out in these wet meadows and compact the soil, which prevents infiltration. So we have already a sediment starved to run off the hill slopes that then hits this compacted wet meadow region, which doesn't infiltrate that water and slow the flow of the channel, but allows it to rush off and seek out the sediment that it finds in the channel, causing erosion in the channel pervasively. Now the impact To society, in this, might be beyond just the aesthetic value of these wet meadows that are really rare in this part of the world and provide a unique habitat. But also, these areas were sponges for water, and so now we don't have these sources that would trickle water back to the system during dry periods or in between, you know, the wetter portions of the seasons. And as a result, you know, we have really no flow in these systems unless it's rained where in the past there was a base flow, a, a groundwater flow, coming out of these marshy wet meadows that constantly feed these systems. And so downstream water needs are now more staccato. They're just like, you know, whenever you get that rainfall event, then you get water. Uh, versus a more consistent flow than we, than we see now that was a product of these marshy sponges just releasing water at a nice even rate. And so I think there's a real implication to this erosion besides the fact that we've kind of thrown these systems out of whack.
0: Another one of Dr. Joyle's questions is whether or not we can use the land in such a way that it helps dampen the negative effects of climate change. Here he is talking about how understanding the way that water moves through a landscape might help inform our land use decisions.
1: The other piece that I think is really fascinating is then being able to understand this knowledge enough. If you understand soil hydrology, if you understand how water is moving across the surface through vegetation, into the subsurface, moving through the soil, And you can do that with simple physics equations. You can take a whole watershed and put it into a computer model, spatial model, and drop precipitation across a landscape and route it through that landscape and be able to simulate water moving through a channel and coming out the outlet of a watershed. And then, knowing that you can simulate something that's really happening, which is what some of the work I've done in Costa Rica, is to simulate these tropical watersheds. And I had the question of whether or not we can landscape our way out of climate change. And what that means is, can we manage our land, our land cover, in a way that climate won't have as big an effect? Can we manage our land cover, our landscapes, just by you know, the, the way that we use them? to reduce the impact that climate change will have. And that's what the modeling shows, is that if we reforest areas that were once converted to pasture, or limit the areas that we convert to pasture land, for example, or coffee or sugarcane in these tropical environments, that we can see a much more reduced, if any, effect to the watershed hydrology by just managing the land cover. We see this enhanced or exaggerated effect of climate change where we clear the forests or impact the soil hydrology through land use. So I think there's a real lesson there in terms of understanding process enough to then model it and to say, okay, well, we don't know how climate effect is going to you know, necessarily affect it, but we can model this whole range of climates on this landscape and say, well, you know, this is kind of the range we can expect, and these are the, ways, these are the tools that we can use to, to try to mitigate those potential effects.
0: I'm curious what got you first interested in all of this.
1: Okay, yeah, good question. Um, well, I'll just start with kind of the idea of geomorphology and walk you through how that came about. Um, Initially, I went to school to become an archaeologist, fascinated with culture, fascinated with ancient cultures. But as I was studying archaeology, I realized you had to really understand the context that these civilizations were buried in. And so you really had to understand the geology. And that, that geology is this younger geology. I mean, I often explain it to people as just young geology. Because it's the same processes that we see in the deep time, but it's the resolution of those processes is much more defined and precise. And it just definitely is the geology discipline that overlaps with humans the most. And so I kind of grabbed it. I was like, wow, this is kind of cool. I was trying to understand you know, what the environment was like when people were there and why they left. The story I mentioned about the abandonment of ancestral Puebloans in you know, the 12th, 1300s, That story is so linked to the the history that's in these geomorphic records as well. So I kind of gravitated more and more towards that geomorphology world because archeology span just seemed a little bit too subjective in terms of some of the conclusions that were being made. I still love it, but I just, for me, I'm very detail-oriented and I wanted something more concrete. Not that geomorphology provides all of that, but to me it seemed like it would provide more of that and the stories were really rich in terms of landscape change. And the other coinciding piece of my personality and my growing up that brought me towards geomorphology was when I was a kid, just traveling. I was lucky enough to travel every summer with my parents, who were both teachers, across the Western US. I grew up in North Dakota, and we'd always drive up to California every summer. And I would just stare at landscapes and be so fascinated with why they looked the way they did. I just love mountain ranges. And growing up in North Dakota, like, any topography was just like, what, what, you know, this is amazing, mind-blowing. And so I always was curious, like, why, why, why? Why is it look this way? Being able to look across a landscape and knowing, to some degree, why it looks the way it does and being able to tell the story that that landscape is sitting there waiting to tell has um, always been something I love to the point that my wife can't have much stand me on road trips because I'm always explaining to her why the landscape looks way like I can't help it. Being raised by teachers and having a long, actually, history of teachers in my family, I love trying to learn from landscapes and then explain to others what's going on. And so it just was a, a natural progression. And there was a time when I first started my master's that I really wanted to go into river restoration work. And so there's a, an aspect to the work that I do that I really like to find an applied sense to it in terms of what does this new knowledge allow us to think about in terms of human impacts and solutions to environmental problems and so i really try to bridge that gap between the academic research sometimes seems esoteric and then bringing that into okay really where can we apply this and does it allow us to think about a system or think about the future of a of a region and an interplay between humans and their livelihoods and the landscapes that they depend on with a more informed background so that we can make better decisions. That's why I kind of I teach both on the environmental sciences side of the school and on the geology side of the school, because I feel like there's a real clear marriage there when you when you have a geomorphology perspective.
0: Usually I ask people you know what they like about their work and being a scientist, but I just appreciate so much that you've woven that into this whole conversation. No, no. So I don't even need to ask It's hard for me <laughs> not to express that. I get That's
1: really excited wonderful. about it. I feel really lucky to be able to talk about this stuff every day. I mean my Geomorphology classes, I look forward to it. I look forward to walking in and, and trying, I feel like I'm in the in the business of blowing minds. And it's such a fun, incredibly rewarding and fun thing to do, to take students out to field trips or to, to landscapes and, and change their whole way of their looking at it and be like, whoa, really, is this, that's what this, you know? And and to be able to see that look on, on students' faces, I mean, it's like, the absolute pinnacle of what I do you know, one, you know one aspect is trying to figure these things out but I can't wait to come back and tell somebody about it because that's really where I feel
0: the most rewarded you can listen again to Science Moab on kzmu.org or by downloading the Science Moab podcast on iTunes the music for our show is written by Jeremy Spaulding and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU